right, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening. As we explore the role of the saints and some of the phenomena that they experienced, uh, all for your honor and glory. So we ask that you help us to better understand what this is all about. Uh, why do certain saints experience such dramatic uh, events and others not? So we ask your blessing on each of us and we ask that you help us to hear what you want us to hear out of scripture and the role of the saints. So we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Tonight we're going to be talking about something that we don't hear a lot of. And yet, uh, it's something that I think we should really talk about. Uh, as you know, in the Old Testament, God used uh, various means to communicate messages to his people in guiding and directing them. Uh, we know about God's intimate uh, relations with Abraham, uh, his direct experience and conversations, etc. Uh, we know more so about those with Moses uh, and various prophets. But in the New Testament, we don't really hear too much about uh, God after the first century uh, directing people through various uh, individuals. And yet we know that many individuals uh, are very much responsible for the church in its present form. Obviously, it took us... Uh, Many hundreds of years, hundreds of years, that sounds a lot, uh, but it is, uh, roughly a thousand years to, to even get to, uh, what the church looks like today. And I'm talking about in the form of structure and theology, not church buildings. Okay. Uh, the priesthood as we know today actually came out of about the 10th century. Prior to that, it had a totally different uh, position in the church. So many things came out of that. But one of the things that I think is extremely interesting uh, is something that we rarely hear about. And that is some of the experiences of the saints. And tonight I want to talk about three of those uh, experiences, and there are a few others, uh, but we're going to talk about the stigmata, uh, bilocation, and levitation. Uh, many of these are interesting. Uh, they tell us more about the saints themselves than they do about God, but in the process, we learn a lot of little things about God, not theological uh, or major things, but little things, okay? And Jesus uh, primarily directs many of the saints uh, in a personal way. Uh, more for 
relationship of what these saints are doing uh, rather than revealing more of himself to them. Remember, the revelation of who Jesus Christ is came out of the first century and not after that. Everything that we knew or needed to know or need to know uh, came out of the first century. Okay, And that is why we call the church the apostolic church because of the apostles and most of the information that we have of Christ came through the apostles in their written form. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, and St. Paul as well as the others. The only other apostle to have really written anything is James, all right, um, the lesser known apostles to our knowledge did not leave any writings, <clears throat> but everything that we need to know about God or Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit came to us through the first century, okay? and all of these other experiences came much later. The first of the stigmata experiences uh, was St. Francis. And that was in the 13th century, the early part of the 13th century, okay, around the year 1320, uh, somewhere between 1320 and 1326 when he died. Okay. I'm sorry? I, I'm sorry. 12, yeah, 1226. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Okay, yeah, correct me if I misspeak because uh, I've been known to do that once in a while. <laughs> okay, um, the idea of the stigmata is something that the church has not really talked a lot about, partly because uh, there have been a lot of copycats, uh, partly because many people look at it as superstition, uh, or hysteria, or illusions of some kind, and yet it isn't. If you read the lives of the saints, and I'm going to read a portion of the experience of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, because it gives us a better feeling of the reality of the experience, and why. Okay? Now, most of these people, uh, St. Francis included, did not receive the stigmata and, uh, until towards the end of their lives. More or less as sort of, um, you mean the crowning glory of all that they experienced, all that they suffered, and all that they did uh, for God alone. All right. Now, what do we mean by stigmata? It comes uh, from a, a Latin word uh, meaning sign, okay? And it is really the sign of the wounds or the representation of the same wounds uh, of Christ. The two hands, the two feet, and the side, the wound in the side. And some of these people experienced even uh, the wounds in the head from the crown of thorns, all right? 
That is what is meant by the stigmata. Many of these people, and there were uh, documented cases of at least 321 people uh, having the sign of the stigmata. Uh, and that is since the early part of the 13th century. Prior to that, it was uh, unheard of. Okay. We talked last week a little bit about Catherine of Siena. Uh, she also experienced the stigmata, but she prayed and begged God not to make it visible because many of these uh, saints uh, that experienced this uh, were ridiculed uh, as being pretentious uh, or dreaming this up or causing it uh, through their own uh, will or efforts, etc. And uh, doctors who have examined some of these people uh, say that in some cases, yes, it was brought on by their own will. But most of the cases, this is not so. It is truly a manifestation of the uniting of the suffering of Christ with the individual. And that's the purpose. The uniting of the sufferings of Christ with the individual. I've talked many times about each of us having a role to play in God's plan of salvation. Part of that role is bearing suffering. Why? We are not fully aware. We don't have a real good uh, definition or uh, explanation to pin it down. But suffering does play a part in our role of God's plan of salvation. And so you might spend some time uh, during this Lenten season to think about that and think how when you experience any form of suffering, whether it be physical or mental or spiritual, um, and I'm not talking about financial suffering, I'm talking about, uh, you know, something that really troubles the soul and, and the heart and soul more so than the pocketbook. But think about how that has played a role in your life. Because quite often, when we experience some form of suffering, it puts us in a different direction than we were going. For various reasons. Okay. Each would be different in its own case. But I challenge you to spend some time uh, between now and uh, the end of Lent uh, to really give it some thought as to how did suffering play a role in your life. And then, how could you have handled it better if you had offered it back to Christ or to God uh, in the form of a prayer? Okay. You all get that? It's a little exercise that I'd like each of you to do. Not that I'm going to ask you to report on it unless you want to. Remember, though, towards the end of this session, and there's only three more 
meetings after this one, uh, that I would like to have each of you, uh, you're not going to be forced, you're not going to get a, a failing mark on your report card or anything if you don't, but we would like you to uh, get up and give uh, just a couple minutes of who your favorite saint is and why. Okay. Right. <clears throat> I'd like to read this passage. It's not real long, and yet it's fairly descriptive of St. Francis. It's an interesting book. It's got a lot of uh, drawings, and it gives a lot of little background uh, notes, uh, anecdotes on his life. Also, let me set the scene. Towards the end of his life, Francis sort of retreated, you might say, to a little hermitage uh, in central, north-central Italy, uh, well, maybe 25 miles northeast of uh, Assisi, uh, with a small group of his first um, followers, some of whom, in their own right, had been recognized as being holy, very holy men, one of them being St. Bonaventure, who was primarily the ruler of the Franciscans at that time, Francis having given it up earlier. Now, Francis never became a priest. He got as far as the diaconate, but never was ordained at his request. All right? Uh, feeling that he was never uh, worthy of it. Now, you can't say <clears throat> in a similar fashion because of Solanus Casey, whom we viewed the DVD here a couple of weeks ago, uh, was ordained as what they call a simplex priest uh, who had limited faculties. He could not hear confessions and he could not uh, preach in theology uh, or to anyone uh, of great, um, let's say, higher education. Okay. St. Francis just felt he wasn't worthy and uh, Christ honored that and therefore he never became a priest. St. Bonaventure was the uh, superior general uh, towards the end of St. Francis' life. Okay. He is one of those who have who uh, contributed to some of the writings in this book. But as I was saying, Francis retreated sort of to a little hermitage that was made by some very wealthy man who owned a lot of uh, property in the area. And uh, he had a, a servant, Brother Leo. Incidentally, uh, that's the pal, you might say, that Solanus Casey had. Uh, in the DVD that we saw earlier, his name was Brother Leo also, just a coincidence. And of course, I know Brother Leo, he's still there. All right. Brother Leo would bring him food in the morning and in, in the evening, very simple food, because uh, Francis did not eat much at all, and in his later life lived uh, on virtually nothing except Holy Communion. And that's not unusual. We'll get into that in a few minutes on others. All right. Uh, while he's in this hermitage, 
he spent most of his time praying and having what is called uh, moments of ecstasy, where he and God would go beyond uh, what we call contemplative prayer and be united, you might say, almost uh, personally or, or, or together. And in one of these instances, Brother Leo is sort of spying on him, which Francis got a little upset about. But And I'm not going to read all of this, but uh, the part uh, relative to the um, the receiving of the stigmata, I think, is rather interesting. It says, not finding Francis in the hut, that is, the hermitage, he started out in the moonlight to look for him. This is Brother Leo. He found him in ecstasy, conversing with someone invisible. Who are you, the saint was saying, and who am I, your miserable and useless servant? Leo also saw a ball of fire descend from heaven and return almost immediately. Seized with awe at this supernatural spectacle, and fearing lest his curiosity might lead St. Francis to uh, dispense with his services. The indiscreet friar, that is Brother Leo, attempted to flee, but the rustling of the leaves betrayed him. Who is there? cried Francis. It is I, Father Brother Leo. Didn't I forbid you, dear little sheep, to spy on me this way? Tell me, under obedience, did you see or hear anything? Brother Leo confessed that he had seen and heard and of what he had seen and heard, and asked for some explanation. The saint admitted to his friend that our Lord had just appeared to him, and he told Leo that something wonderful was going to happen soon on the mountain. What was this wonderful thing? As was his habit, Francis wanted to consult the Gospels about it. In the Hermitage Chapel, where Brother Leo said Mass, he, now remember, brothers in those days could say Mass. Brother was even more important uh, because he was a monk uh, than the priesthood. It has since changed or reversed roles, you might say, but not at this time period. Brother Leo said Mass. He asked his friend to open the missal three times at random. And each time it opened at the story of the Passion. By this sign, writes St. Bonaventure, who wrote a lot of this, <clears throat> the saint understood that having imitated Christ in his life, he was also to imitate him in the sufferings that preceded his death. So, filled with courage, despite his ruined health and physical exhaustion, he made ready for martyrdom. The Feast of the Exaltation, which is September the 14th, uh, had come. It commemorated the victory that had permitted um, some name I can't even pronounce here, uh, to regain the Savior's cross from the infidels. This would have been the the Muslims that had occupied Israel. And no feast was more popular at that time among Christians who were continually being called on to take the cross in the Crusades. 
It was probably on this day, September 14, 1224, that the miracle of the stigmata took place. In that hour that precedes sunrise, kneeling before his hut, Francis prayed, his face turned toward the east. O oh Lord, he pleaded, I beg of you, to, I beg of you, two graces before I die, to experience in myself, in all possible fullness, the pains of your cruel passion, and to feel for you the same love that made you sacrifice yourself for us. For a long time he prayed, his heart aflame with love and pity. Then suddenly, writes St. Bonaventure, some of the heights of heaven, from the heights of heaven, a seraph with six wings of flame flew swiftly down. He bore the likeness of a man nailed to a cross. Two of his wings covered his face. With two others he flew, and the last two covered his body. It was Christ himself who had assumed this form to manifest himself to the saint. He fixed his gaze to the man of, uh, I'm sorry, he fixed his gaze upon Francis and then left him after imprinting the miraculous stigmata of the crucifixion on his flesh. From that moment, continues the seraphic doctor, Mrs. St. Bonaventure, Francis was marked with the wounds of the divine redeemer. His hands and feet appeared as though pierced with nails with round black heads on the palm side of the hands and on the feet with bent points extruding from the backside of the hands and the soles of the feet. In addition, there was a wound in the right side as if made by a lance from which blood frequently flowed moistened his drawers and tunic. There had been no witnesses to the prodigy, and although it had left visible marks, the saint's first thought was to keep it secret. And then, after much hesitation, so he decided to ask counsel of his companions. So he asked them in veiled words if they thought that certain extraordinary graces ought to be kept secret or revealed. Brother Illuminato, who well deserved his name, remarked St. Bonaventure, divining that something out of the common order had occurred, spoke up. Brother Francis, it might be wrong for you to keep for yourself that which God has given you to edify your neighbor. Timidly, then, the saint told what had happened, but without showing his wounds which he always took care afterwards to cover up with bandages. He even formed the habit of keeping the bandaged hands in the sleeves of his habit. And if you notice, if you're ever in a monastery, or even sometimes the priest will put their hands inside uh, their habit, okay, that's where that came from. That's where that whole idea came from. It's not only to keep your hands warm. In his case, it was to hide the wounds. All right. <clears throat> However, as the stigmata never disappeared, a number of persons were able to see them. 
Among them were Brother Leo, whom Francis took as his nurse and who regularly bathed the oozing wound in the side, Brother Rufino, and others who gave sworn testimony about them, and all those present at the death of the saint who were able to venerate him in his coffin, especially Brother Jacopa and the brother, and it's in quotations because this is actually a woman, all right, who was very instrumental in supporting and helping out in the monastery, and that's why she is called brother, all right, sort of an honorary title, right, and it's in quotation marks here. Brother Jacopa and her sons, and Sister Claire, that is St. Claire, and her daughters, meaning the nuns, in addition, Pope Alexander IV, who in a sermon heard by uh, St. Bonaventure, averred that while Francis was still alive, he had seen the miraculous marks with his own eyes. Uh, some rationalist scholars have indeed attempted to impunge their uh, existence, although the presence of nails embedded in the flesh proved most vexing to them. But their opinion bears no weight. And while waiting for them to furnish proof, we may refer to the judgment of the Holy See, which, by a favor not granted to any other saint at that time, and by the advice of St. Robert Bellarmine, uh, extended to the whole church the annual observance of the Feast of the Stigmata of St. Francis at the time of Pope Paul V in 1605. And although the changes made in 1960 reduced this feast to a commemoration, the feast is still observed by the Franciscan order in which it was granted by Pope Benedict XI. So that gives you some idea. Now, we have a more modern day saint that had the same experience. Padre Pio. Padre Pio of uh, San Giovanni Rotondo in uh, northeastern Italy right, who died um, uh, was that? 56? Yeah, about that. Yeah, somewhere in that. Yeah, fairly, you know, within the last 50 years or so, okay. Uh, I have a book, but I couldn't find it. I don't know. I must have loaned it out to somebody. But I have a book, uh, an autobiography, a biography of uh, Padre Pio. Uh, he was canonized you know, within the past 10 years or so by Pope John Paul II. Okay. Uh, Padre Pio is very interesting in, in many ways. He came from a very uh, poor family. Uh, he was uh, very sickly uh, most of his life. In fact, uh, they were concerned whether or not he was even healthy enough to be a priest. Um, but yet, once he uh, became, once he was ordained, he lived in the monastery at uh, San Giovanni Rotondo uh, the rest of his life pretty much the same way that uh, St. Teresa of Lisieux did. Once she entered the convent, she never left. All right? Uh, but Padre Pio lived uh, 
through a, a kind of a ripe old age. I think he was in his 70s when he died. Uh, he was interesting, or his case is very interesting in many ways. He received the stigmata pretty much in the same way that uh, St. Francis did. Um, he tried to cover him up, but his superior said no, that uh, it was not just for his own sake, that he was to show the world. And the world came to him. People would line up for hours uh, to go to confession to him. And it was interesting because he had the power of being in two places at the same time. If it was God's will and for God's purpose. All right? uh, not his own will. He could not do that on his own. But if he was needed and uh, it was always in connection with some miracle that was needed to uh, be performed for the benefit of someone. Okay. Uh, he had another gift, and that was he could read minds and hearts. When people would go to confession and they were totally honest or didn't tell all the details surrounding given sins, he would know that and was able to uh, sort of uh, encourage them to talk a little bit more about it and bring out the truth. In other words, he wouldn't force them, but he would ask questions and uh, give little details where uh, they were almost compelled uh, to spill the whole beans, you might say, and tell the truth. Uh, so, there is a very interesting case, uh, and for somebody who lived, you might say, in our time period, uh, we can really relate to that kind of person. Not so much to his lifestyle and so forth, because he lived as a monk his entire life. <clears throat> you have others. Uh, there are a number of people, as I said, I'd like to read a little bit Here's a, a little bit about uh, St. Catherine de Ricci in uh, the middle of the 16th century. It says, many stigmatics uh, whose apparitions were periodical, that is, not um, on a regular basis. Most of those who had experienced being given the stigmata, it was permanent. But not all. Some of them, it would come and go. Um, others, it would be felt internally, uh, spiritually, physically, but not evident visibly. St. <clears throat> Catherine de Ricci, whose ecstasies of the passion began when she was 20, in the year 1542, and the bull of her canonization, that is uh, short for, you might say, a bulletin uh, during the canonization process. Uh, 
uh, states that for 12 years they occurred with minimum uh, minute regularity. Minute regularity, not that often. The ecstasy lasted exactly 28 hours, and that's true for most of them. Uh, when they would have these ecstasy experiences, uh, they would last from uh, Friday, uh, rather Thursday evening until early Friday afternoon, the same time period as Christ's Passion. All right, after the Last Supper, until his death, shortly after noon on Friday. All right. <clears throat> The only interruption being for the saint to receive Holy Communion. Catherine conversed aloud as if uh, enacting a drama. This drama was divided into 17 scenes. All the various steps, major steps of Christ. The Last Supper, uh, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, praying there, the 14 stations of the cross, the taking down of, uh, of the cross, I mean, from the cross, etc., from the burial. Seventeen scenes. On coming out of the ecstasy, the saints' limbs were covered with wounds produced by whips and cords, uh, not visible uh, otherwise. <clears throat> Dr. Imbert, one of the uh, those who examined her, has attempted to count the number of stigmatics with the following results. None are known prior to the 13th century. That would be St. Francis, as I mentioned earlier. The first mention is St. Francis of Assisi, in whom the stigmata were of a character never seen subsequently. In the wounds of, and in the wounds of feet and hands um, were flesh representing nails. There's some word here is all garbled up were wounds, of course, of the flesh representing the nails and those on one side having round black back heads or black heads, I should say, that would be in the palms and those on the other side having long points. In other words, <clears throat> when the nail went through, there would be an imprint of the nail head here and on the other side, it would have the flesh coming out in line with the nail coming out of the hand. Okay. That's what it's trying to say. I don't know what this word here that's all garbled up. Uh, <clears throat> the saint's humility could not prevent a great many of his brethren uh, beholding with their own eyes the existence of these wonderful wounds during his lifetime as well as after his life. We'll talk about St. Francis. The fact is attested by a number of contemporary historians and the Feast of the Stigmata of St. Francis is kept on the 17th of September. Dr. Dr. Imbert counts 321 stigmatics in whom, the, in whom there is every reason to believe in a divine action. He believes that others would be found by consulting the libraries of Germany, Spain, and Italy. In this list, there are 41 men. When you compare the 41 men to the 320, you have uh, 280 women. 280 is interesting because it's 7 times 40. 
seven being a perfect number in the Jewish culture. Okay. There are 62 saints or blessed of those sexes or both sexes of whom the best known uh, number 26 were or are. And he goes down and lists all of these here. Most of these are women. There were 20 stigmatics in the 19th century. And we don't know because this was written some time ago uh, how many in the 20th century or if there are any uh, in the 21st century currently living. Uh, that would be a, an interesting thing. There is one case that I was personally aware of and I don't recall all the details. <clears throat> and this is a, a German lady by the name of Teresa Newman. N-E-U-M-A-N-N. Teresa is spelled in the same way, same way as Teresa Levesu. T-H-E-R-E-S-E. All right. Uh, let's see. This doesn't even give. There was very little information about her, but she lived back and died you know, around 1939 or something. I remember it well because uh, when I was in elementary school, I had to do a research paper on it. I've long, long since lost that paper, uh, but I remember the case. Uh, she was a woman who had all kinds of ecstasies and other phenomena in addition to the stigmata. She ate nothing except the consecrated bread of the Eucharist and took no water whatsoever. But the church never, for some reason or other, church never accepted that. And when she died, there was absolutely no recognition whatsoever. Um, it's a little strange because, as I said, I couldn't find any other information available on her. And yet there is uh, several references, which I didn't bother to look up. Uh, but the Internet, you know, which has all kinds of uh, stuff, good, bad, and indifferent, Oh, would you please? I would. I would like that. Yes. Historians were saying about Roman crucifixion that they, they probably did not nail people through the palms because the palms would not be able to support the weight of the body. It would right. tear right off. So they and and the Shroud of Turin seems to have stains that indicate that it was through the wrist. wrist. And yet all the stigmatic have yes. wounds in the palm. Yes. 
Yes. Well, I think you're right. Um, what this lady is saying that <clears throat> the practical way that Christ and others who were crucified using nails to the cross would be through the wrist because if it were in the palm, uh, the weight of the body would automatically have pulled that, that right straight through, you know, through the fingers here. Uh, but I think God in his wisdom felt that that wasn't practical and wasn't necessary in giving these people special privileges. Putting the nails, uh, the mark of the, the nails through the palms is what most people think of anyways. Even when we see very expensive statues or, or crucifixes today, it is through the palm rather than the wrist. You're right as far as the practicality, but I think what we think of today and really doesn't make any difference. Yes. I believe, I believe it's not only artwork, uh, but then art is, you know, art. Uh, the stigmata is real. But the stigmata was always through the palm that we are aware of. Yeah. Not through the wrist. But I think again, that's more of a practical thing because if it were through the wrist, that would incapacitate that person and the wrist, would it not? Most likely, yeah, most likely. This way, the person could still use his hands if it were in the palm. Because that's quite a bit of flesh, even though it was ex- probably excruciatingly painful. Uh, let's move on. And yes, thank you. I would appreciate seeing uh, what you have there. Uh, by location, this is a lesser known phenomena, but there are still several saints who uh, had the privilege of being in two places at one time uh, for the purpose of serving God in some way and the benefit of a third party always for the benefit of the third party, not uh, for the uh, saint himself or herself. Okay, And most of these were women, except that we know that uh, Padre Pio did have this particular uh, blessing, you might say. Levitation. Levitation is one thing that uh, very few of us know anything about or have ever experienced it except perhaps at some magic show, you know, uh, Las Vegas, Circus Soleil or something like that, which of course is all uh, hocus pocus because it isn't true magic, but it appears to be. These saints, um, we talked last week about, or Steve talked last week about St. Teresa of Avila. She had uh, the experience of levitation. And in some ways, 
it is difficult to explain because we really don't know much about it, nor why. The only one, and I can't remember which saint it is, but there's a story about one saint who was uh, at a church function where they were celebrating the uh, dedication of the new church. And the church was finished. The only thing is the crucifix on top of the uh, bell tower uh, had not been placed there because it was so heavy and they were having a difficult time finding a way to get it up there. Uh, this saint said, no problem. He took the thing by the hand and flew up there and put it on. Um, you can believe what you want, but that's, they say, that is very real. Okay? Uh, but levitation is something that many of the saints have. It is sort of a lifting up uh, out of our normal positions and meeting God halfway in the air. Uh, I really can't give you much more than that. There's virtually nothing uh, even on the internet to explain that. And yet it is discussed several times. Did you run across it with the... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Steve ran across that when he was uh, looking up St. Teresa of Avila last week. Uh, rather interesting phenomena. Now, why all of this? As I said earlier, one of the things is the importance of suffering. The importance of uniting our sufferings with Christ for his purpose as well as our purpose or for something relative to a third party. We can offer our sufferings up for the benefit in some way of a third party. Right? <clears throat> we don't know exactly how that works, but we do know that that is considered as intercessory prayer with an offering. And it does benefit others. Now, again, that has to be in line or in tune with the will of God. That's most important. But it is... Uh, Something that can be done. Why some of these other things? Uh, particularly the stigmata or the bilocation. Bilocation, of course, is one of those things that is to fulfill some particular need uh, or purpose that God or the saint might have uh, to fulfill some role or some purpose in God's plan of salvation. Again, all of this is directed for that purpose. Uh, but what we have to gain from that, what we individuals who are not blessed in some way, is to look at the possibility. Look at uniting our mind and our heart and our everyday living with God, with Christ, and Praying that we understand that we are given some indication of what our role is. Right? 
A lot of people are afraid to... I had a woman tell me one time that she was actually afraid to pray for God to tell her what her role is because she was, of course, had a family and so forth, and she was afraid that she would have to go out and do something entirely different and leave her family behind. And I assured her that was not the case, that it was always in line with your particular uh, situation as it is today. It may change, but then you change with it. It's always in line with where you are, with what your circumstances, your place and style and so forth of living. God is not going to wildly change you. I had another man one time tell me that he didn't particularly like uh, praying for that because this is, of course, when I was still teaching down in Southern California. And he thought he would have to go down to Pershing Square and stand on a soapbox and preach. Uh, I assured him that that wasn't the case. I wouldn't go down to Pershing Square at night for any reason. Um, Pershing Square is, of course, the center of Los Angeles, uh, the city of Los Angeles, downtown. You don't just go down there and hang around. That's unless you're court in danger. Okay. Uh, no. We are all given a portion of to fulfill in God's plan. But it is in line with who we are and what we are now. As I said, it might change. I never expected years ago to be up here teaching at my age and circumstances. Um, but here I am. Okay? I'm glad to be here. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, you know, it's really, to me, it's very interesting and somewhat comfortable. How many of you have experienced being alone and not having or experience or thinking or knowing that you have a purpose? Uh, I don't ask you to raise hands or anything, uh, but I'm sure that all of you have experienced that at some time or other, that you are kind of alone, even though you may have a family and so forth around, but you feel like you're sort of out there like a ship without a paddle, or a boat without a paddle, whatever. Uh, the thing is, God is really calling on you to do something for him at all times. He's never going to waste time. And regardless of what he asks of you, he will always make sure that you have the time and the resources to fill it. He's not going to ask you to do something that is wildly out of your normal routine and then not give you the resources or the time to fill up. So, it's comforting to know that he is there, that he wants your time, your attention, your love. And when we give that, he returns it hundredfold. Hundredfold. 
You can never outdo the gifts that God gives us. What we give him, well, let's put it this way. As I've often said, and you may have seen it in some of my articles, I use it quite often because I say that our life, our very being, is God's gift to us. How we use it, how we fulfill it, is our gift to him. And if we do that with sincerity, uh, with wanting to fulfill his role, his purpose for us, then you will experience the greatest peace and comfort that love can give. And that's what it's all about. If you read the story of all of these saints, I have, because Francis happens to be my patron saint, my name. I have many books on the life of Francis. And he did exactly that. He came from a very wealthy family. He was quite a playboy in his early days. But once he encountered God, he gave all of that up. Um, all of it. I mean, he renounced his birthright. He was the oldest male in the family. He renounced his birthright, gave up all of that, and became a monk dedicated to serving the poor. He was, you might say, uh, a counterpart in an earlier time period uh, to Mother Teresa, serving the poorest of the poor. But the love that he experienced for doing this, and it's kind of funny because <clears throat> one of the first things that Christ said to him, not sort of directly, or it wasn't like this, you know, now Francis, do this, but he experienced this idea of Christ wanting him to rebuild his church. <clears throat> During the uh, turn of the millennium, uh, the church had really kind of drifted around a little bit. And there were a lot of loose ends and people were losing interest. And God wanted somebody to really set the church uh, on spiritual fire. So he wanted St. Francis to start this. So he said, Francis, I want you to rebuild my church. So Francis got out went and got a wheelbarrow and got some stones and started to rebuild the church that was kind of falling down there because of the lack of interest and need of repair. Finally, God said, uh-uh, that's not what I meant. He says, I want you to rebuild the spirituality within the church, in the family of believers. And so that's when he gathered a few guys and uh, they began what they call the Friars Minor, uh, or the Little Brothers, you might say. That's how they would translate that Friars Minor, would be Little Brothers. And that's what they called themselves for centuries. Of course, after he died, uh, well, it actually was before he died, but shortly before he died, it was changed more or less 
to Franciscans, but that was more of a nickname. The actual name still is Friars Minor. I think if you remember when you saw the DVD on Solanus Casey, uh, each priest that was mentioned in there would have OFM after his uh, name, and that would be the Order of Friars Minor. All right. Uh, and then they would say dash Capuchin or Decalcin. Okay. Uh, the Capuchin is those that wear the brown habit with the cape on the back. The decals are those who wear no shoes. All right. Most of them are, the decals are those in Europe. We don't have too many that I'm aware of here in the States. Uh, but again, the why of all of this is to unite the plan of God in bringing people back to the Father. That is the whole idea of God's plan of salvation. The uniting of mankind helping each other to come back to the Father at the end of time. And as I've said many times, God does not condemn anyone. It is only when mankind rejects the Father or Christ or the Church and neglects to take hold of what his plan of salvation or his little role in God's plan of salvation is. Okay. So don't be left out. Don't be left out. It's it's a joy, really, once you get the hang of it, to fulfill whatever God wants of you. You have wonderful experiences. Uh, you have some downfalls, too, believe me. Don't, it's not a, all an uphill uh, game. But nevertheless, the experiences that you have in fulfilling your role in God's plan of salvation outweigh any physical gift you could possibly be given. Any questions? Vic? Would apparitions appear under other phenomena, or would they be some other category? Well, no, ecstasies and yes, that's a good point. Vic just asked if apparitions would appear under other phenomena. And yes, by all means, uh, many of these saints had many uh, <coughs> apparitions of Christ and other saints as well as the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, so yes, uh, apparitions um, would be certainly one of them. Yeah. By all means. Any other questions? Yes, Cora? Saint, uh, Saint Gemma Galgani, uh, that's another saint that I'd like to talk a little bit about. I just hope, I just hope I brought it with me. Maria Goretti is another one. Uh, 
St. Gemma Golgani, <coughs> the Gem of Christ, born in 1878, died in 1903. It says her heart was on fire. Well, this is an interesting one because, well, I'll tell you afterwards. Um, her heart was on fire with love of God and love of everything, and, and God was everything to her. So no St. Gemma is to love her. It is impossible to read her writings and not be touched by the fire of her extraordinary love for God, which she expresses so well in her writings. Just one example of her remarkable love for God would be the numerous times that the name of Jesus occurs in her writings. In fact, we find in her writings that the blessed name of Jesus occurs 1,982 times in her ecstasies and 1,475 times in her letters, as her devoted biographers point out. Okay. Uh, she was born March 12th, uh, It'll be next week, wouldn't it? Uh, 1878. Um, mix. Her mystical experiences began in 1898, 20 years. Miraculous cure of a serious illness on Friday, March the 3rd, 1899. Uh, received the stigmata on June 8th, 1899. Vigil of Solemnity of the Sacred Heart. Um, You wanted to know how would they um, it doesn't score oh wait, wait just a moment yeah. no it doesn't really say in here I'll um, let you have that uh, St. Gemma Golgani uh, had uh, an interesting life, uh, and in many cases it used to be that certain parts of, I know this is kind of gruesome to talk about, but certain parts of saints uh, would be uh, cut off and used as relics, okay, not only in churches but in museums and uh, private uh, collections, you might say, uh, for a lack of a better term. <clears throat> St. Gemma Golgani was one who gave her heart to Christ. And when she died, her heart was removed from her body and put in a glass, uh, fancy glass uh, reliquary uh, or Base, I guess you might say, and I had the privilege of seeing that because it's in the monastery of the Passionist Fathers in Rome, and I've been to Rome many, many times because I used to live there uh, in, in Italy. And Saint Gemma Galgani's uh, heart is encased there, and every so often the blood within the heart and surrounding the heart liquefies. Okay. And that's true with several saints. Saint uh, Januarius, the patron saint of Naples, is the same way. 
is uh, feast day is in January, and I lived in Naples, and uh, the people of Naples go wild, you know, on his feast day because uh, the blood that is surrounding the heart there of him uh, liquefies on that feast day. And everybody attests to it. The church even acknowledges it. And this is not unusual. Well, I think it's unusual myself, but uh, it does happen and it has occurred in other saints as well. Okay. Now, the church has forbidden that to happen. They do not cut parts of the body off any longer. Um, I remember when I was in Spain and uh, we went to the church in Seville, Sevilla, uh, where Ferdinand and Elizabeth are buried and Columbus is buried. Or the uh, guide that was with us said, uh, but he doesn't rest in peace. He rests in pieces. There's a peace in El Salvador, you know, the States. There's a peace in Havana, and the rest of it is in Seville. Okay? So he doesn't rest in peace. He rests in pieces. At one time, I don't know if it's still true, but at one time, wasn't it required that every altar have a relic? Yes. Yes. No. 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 Uh, Dick's question was that there was a time in every church, every Catholic church, the main altar had to have a relic of some saint. Uh, and that's where that practice started. They would actually take parts of the body, mostly fingers and toes and that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, that was stopped some time ago and <coughs> officially in Vatican II, it was forbidden. Okay. Now they'll use secondary relics, such as clothing or rosaries or books or something that the saint used, but it is no longer required that a uh, relic be in the altar because, first of all, you know, more churches are being built and you'd start having a market in uh, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, so no, that's no longer required. Although I do understand we do have here in St. Clair uh, uh, two elders. Yeah, I won't say who they are because I don't know. <laughs> I did, but I forgot. Yeah. Okay. All right. Any other questions? Yes, Jim? Uh, yeah, Chet just said that there was an article in a paper recently about uh, somebody stealing the heart of a saint, is it, uh, in Ireland. Yeah, well, as I said, they don't allow that anymore. Yeah. But what is done is done. Okay. Uh, there is a wonderful chapel, I think I mentioned this last week, uh, in Rome, in the church of Santa Croce, the Church of the Holy Cross in Jerusalem, um, where a side chapel contains the 
remains of the true cross, which isn't very much left anymore. Uh, the sign that uh, Pilate uh, put over the over the head of uh, Christ, you know, uh, this is the King of the Jews in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Uh, that is there. Uh, some of the thorns from the crown of thorns, some of the nails, and the chains that Peter was imprisoned in. And these are sort of relics that anyone can go and see if they know about them, but it's not advertised and uh, because they don't want a lot of tourists there. Yes, Susan? Authenticity. Authenticity. Yes, I knew that's what you were going to say. <laughs> you know, I really find it hard to believe that the crucifixion was such a horrible thing that people ran over there and ripped the nails out of the cross that Jesus was crucified on to go and save somewhere because of the relics. So, you know what I mean? I, I find it really hard to believe that those would be the nails that Jesus was crucified on. Well, that's understandable, but you then don't know the story behind that. That's what I'm asking you. Okay. Give me the story. <laughs> All right. Crucifixion was condemned and stopped for all intents and purposes by the Edict of Milan in 313 uh, by Constantine, Emperor Constantine. Okay. His mother, St. Helena, after that time period, thought about the same thing that you're thinking of, with all of those relics, and prayed to God for permission and direction to go and see if she could find them. Okay. Well, since crucifixion had uh, been banned, any permanent crosses, and a lot of them were just trees that were had grown there and, you know, were stripped down and used because it was just the crossbar that was put on. Uh, those were all uh, cut down and done away with. All right. But she found a pile of those in the dump, you might say. And she had the same problem of determining which were the true cross and which wasn't. And God inspired her by saying, I will let you know. And she had a servant that was quite ill. When they came upon a group of crosses, God said, let the servant find by searching. And at one point, the servant was partially, but miraculously, partly cured. It was determined that that was the cross of the good thief. In further searching, of course they all get excited, you know, about this. In further searching, the servant was miraculously fully cured. And it was inspired that, or she was inspired, that that was the true cross. And once it was recovered with nails still in it, don't ask me how or why, uh, it was taken back to Rome 
and, of course, cleaned up a little bit, I would assume. Unfortunately, many people wanted pieces of it. There again, it didn't rest in peace, it rested in pieces. Uh, until the church finally put a stop to taking pieces of it. Okay. The cross of the good thief is there in, it's just the crossbar, right? Uh, is there pretty much intact. But the remains of the true cross, uh, there's very, very little remain. The plaque over the, the head, uh, still has the carvings that can be made out roughly, if you know what you're looking at. Uh, anybody's guess about the nails and the crown of thorns? I don't know. But that's, that's kind of the story of how they got from Jerusalem to Rome through the efforts of St. Helena. And there is a church now in her honor, the Church of St. Helena, or it's called the Church of the Holy Stairs, because the stairs that uh, Christ had to walk up to meet Pontius Pilate were demolished or removed, you might say, and brought also to Rome. Yeah. The Church of the Holy Stairs. Now, you, you know, the Church does not even discuss this because it's not something that you are bound to believe. It is a nice story. You're welcome to believe it or not. Uh, I happen to believe it because of many other things in connection with it. But, um, you know, that's up to each person. Okay. Steve? I have a pretty uh, rigorous yeah, I hope I didn't say anything that no. was contrary to that. <laughs> In particular, the, the marker. Yes. Right. Yes. And it's interesting, uh, I think maybe I told you this, uh, when some visitors from the States came, they always wanted to go to Rome and see all of these sites, and of course, since I had been there many times, I, I took them, and in one case, we took several pictures around the city uh, before we got to this chapel. Uh, while we were in the chapel, we took some more pictures, flash in those days with real film, not uh, the phone type of thing, uh, and afterwards, we took a lot of pictures. Those that we took before in the chapel and after the chapel came out beautifully. Everyone that was taken in the chapel came out blank. There's no way, no explanation. Yeah. It was almost like we weren't supposed to do that. Okay. Um, but it's interesting. And if you ever have an opportunity to go to Rome, um, let me know and I'll give you... Uh, some little insight as to how to get into this little chapel. Okay. Any other questions? That's true. Yes, quite often, and yes, what Jean, Jean said is that the possibility, and, and I told him, or at least it says I told him, uh, that 
the nails were through the hands, but then supported with rope. And often you will see uh, pictures in that respect. And in fact, I believe in one of those Hollywood movies, they also use ropes uh, in addition to the nails. Yeah. So, but again, you know, if, if you dwell on details, you lose sight of the overall purpose. And that's far more important. But it's important that we also spend time, particularly during Lent, dwelling on not so much whether the marks were in the palms or the wrist, but the fact that Christ suffered a great deal for all mankind. Not just the apostles, not just for Catholics, but for all mankind. Uh, and we are included in that. And part of his suffering then should be kind of uh, taken upon us so that we unite whatever suffering that we might have with him. Before we leave, next week we are going to be discussing saints of the 5th century, 4th century, 5th, actually 5th century, I believe that should be. Uh, the typist, you know, is not the greatest, especially when he, I mean, uh, <coughs> types at night. Uh, nevertheless, we're going to be talking about uh, three different saints, doctors of the church, who are greatly different than those that we talked about a week or two ago. All right? Uh, because the 5th century in the church marked a time of peace as far as the church was concerned. There was a lot of turmoil within the Roman Empire, but as far as the church was concerned, uh, due again to the Edict of Milan by Constantine in the previous century, but nevertheless, so now is the time when much of our uh, theology was developed. Uh, primarily by St. Augustine, also by many other great saints. But we're going to be talking about St. Jerome, uh, St. Augustine, and Leo the Great. And I think you'll find that, at least I hope you'll find that, very interesting. So let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for allowing us to explore the phenomena that you privileged uh, certain saints with. We ask that you help us to see where we might fit in. Not that we expect to be blessed with uh, such experiences that you have given to some of the privileged saints, but help us to understand, first of all, what our role is in your overall plan of salvation. And how best can we fulfill that, knowing that you will provide uh, the time uh, and the resources to do it. So we ask your blessing on our efforts and we help, hope and pray that we fulfill all that you ask of us. So we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.